Beloved, please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 has been uh, somewhat famously called the Hall of Faith. Um, It could be called a Song of Faith. It's a picture gallery. It's a catalog of spiritual greatness. And what the author, what the author, pastor, preacher of Hebrews does is with sweeping grandeur on our climb to glory, our steady climb to glory, we read of ancient men and women, heroes and heroines of the faith, men and women of old that are testified to by God in Scripture as pleasing to God because they Trust, they believe and trust and obey God's revealed will. These are examples of, even as we've been going through Hebrews, where the author, out of pastoral concern, gives great warning passages. Uh, These are stellar examples of men and women who did not drift away, who did not neglect so great a salvation, who did not apostatize, who did not shrink back to destruction, even as you read, or as we read at the end of chapter 10. And what we have in verses 5 and 6 is we come to our second example, the second of three pre-flood superstars, a man who lived around 5,500 years ago. Uh, this man that we read of in verses 5 and 6 is one of only two men in Scripture that were taken up to God before they died. He is also one of only two men in Scripture that are specifically stated that so-and-so walked with God. He is only referenced five times in Scripture. Two of those are genealogies where his name just appears. Once in the Old Testament, once in the New Testament. He appears one time in the book of Genesis in a few verses and then twice in the New Testament. Once in Jude and in our passage here in Hebrews. Beloved, hear the word of God as I read our passage this morning, which is two verses, verses 5 and 6 of Hebrews chapter 11. This is the word of God. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And without faith, It is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Beloved, this is the word of God read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now what we have here is from this preacher, this author, pastor, preacher. We have a built-in outline. We have an illustration. We have the proposition and we have an application that the author gives to us. And I like what Sinclair Ferguson, another one of my favorite living Scottish men, preachers, he once gave a gentle warning about passages, about verses and chapters with which we are very familiar, our favorite go-to chapters and verses, namely that sometimes out of over-familiarity we can forget to ask the question, why is this here? And that's one of the beauties of expositional preaching, of passage by passage, verse by verse. We have a built-in answer. And so we are reminded to, in our expositional journey through the book of Hebrews, what the author wrote back in chapter 6, verse 11, where the author there said, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence 
so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, and then in verse 12, so that, purpose statement, you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That you may mimic those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Hope, obedience, and inheritance is the pattern laid in a purpose statement. In Hebrews 6, 12, and it is the pattern that we see throughout Hebrews chapter 11. Beloved, the spiritually mature Old Testament saints of Hebrews chapter 11 have much to teach us New Testament little ones as we study the word of God. So let's first look at the illustration at the very beginning. And the text opens, look at the beginning of verse 5, by faith Enoch. So the second example, the second example after Abel, and the key to the outline of the entire chapter by faith. That is the main theme of Hebrews chapter 11. The word faith appears multiple, multiple times, some 27 times from the last couple verses of chapter 10 through the first couple uh, verses of chapter 12. I had the great blessing. I met with a, a wonderful man uh, about a week and a half ago who was raised as a Jehovah Witness. Very uh, wonderful man, had a fantastic time. And we we're able to talk about the faith, talk about the gospel, talk about salvation that is a free gift of God. And coming off of Hebrews 11, it was just a wonderful reminder for me to go to this when I was opening up the scripture with this man, and I, I loved it. At the very beginning of our time together, he said something to the effect of, if, if it's in the Bible, that's where I want to base my belief. And I said, amen. I, I absolutely, I can't hardly agree with that more. By faith, by faith, by faith again and again. Beloved, that is the theme that the author brings out here. And what he's doing here is he says, by faith, and he gives us the name of the second example, Enoch where we met Enoch for the first time. The reader of Scripture meets him the first time in the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 4, even as we were briefly reminded last week, has the sordid episode of the great sin of Cain. But it opens up with uh, a fledgling faith of Eve and the birth of a son, Cain, and then Abel. And then the sad situation where Cain murdered Abel. But then at the end of chapter Four, things take a turn again where it is at that time, at the time of Seth, the son that was given to Adam and Eve at the end of chapter 4, that men began to call upon the name of Yahweh, which I think was the gathering together of corporate praise and worship even in very Old Testament times. But then what happens, we go into Genesis chapter 5, and there is a genealogy from Adam to Noah. And when you read that, what you see again and again is as the author, as Moses, describes this genealogy of the history, the family tree of humanity. Again, from Adam to Noah, eight times you see the words, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's like a walk through a cemetery. But in the middle of Genesis chapter 5, there is a beacon of hope, a fascinating example of a man that is a powerful illustration of the grace of God. A man that we know from the couple other references in Scripture was a preacher and a prophet. Martin Luther, the reformer, said that the list of the names in Genesis chapter 5 
are the greatest heroes that we know except for Jesus and John the Baptist. This man Enoch in this great family tree of these epic seminal names of history, Enoch stands above the others. Enoch the son of Jared, Enoch the father of Methuselah shows us, shows us that at any point in time a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God, there is the hope of conquering death. Now, here in Hebrews 11, what's interesting as we are coming to Enoch is a second example after Abel. The theme again is the same, every single one of them, by faith, by faith, by faith. But what we see is it is different manifestations, different dimensions of the one true faith in different situations. Abel illustrated worship by faith. Enoch illustrates a walk by faith. So, verse 5, the author continues, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God took him. He was transposed. He was changed. He was transferred from one environment, one state of being to another. And this is where, along with Elijah, the prophet later, Enoch is one of two men in Scripture that, again, were taken up by God prior to death. He put off mortal and corruptible flesh, and he put on immortal and incorruptible flesh. But just for a moment, turn back to Genesis chapter 5. And we don't have time. Uh, It certainly would fit in well with our parent-child dedication at the end of the service to read all of chapter 5, but we don't have time. So let's just pick it up in verse 21. And again, what we have up to verse 21 is we have this pattern that God has laid out for us, where Seth lived for so many years after he became the father of Enish, and then he died. And then Enish lived so many years after he became the father of Kenan, and he died, and he died, and he died again and again. But then Moses breaks with the pattern. God breaks with the pattern that has been repeated through this when we come to Enoch, verse 21 of Genesis 5. And Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. And then here's where he breaks. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. And Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. So there's a breaking pattern there where all the others and he died. At the very end of verse 24, he says, and he was not for God took him. Also, he gives a description that was not given in any of the other heroes of the faith that they walked with God. In fact, Moses writes that twice here in the record. And there's even in the Hebrew grammar, there's a grammar of intensity here. He walked about with God. It was his habit. It was his pattern. It was characteristic of his life, this habitual walk in intimate fellowship with God. In Scripture, we can understand that when they talk about someone who walks with God, or actually someone's walk in general, whether it's a right walk or a bad walk, it describes their manner of life, their daily conduct. And here in Hebrews 11, what he's saying is even though it does not specifically say in Genesis, it doesn't mention faith with Enoch, we know that it was a walk of faith. It was a walk of faith. It was the practice, we could say, of the presence of God. And 
In the same way that Enoch was one of two men who were taken up, he was also one of only two men in Scripture that, again, are specifically said to have walked with God. To be sure, the godly men and women of Scripture, those in Hebrews 11 and those, all the saved at some level, certainly do walk with God. But only Enoch and his great-grandson Noah are specifically stated to have walked with God. Genesis 6-9, Noah was a blameless, righteous man who walked with God. Again, describing a, a Hebrew idiom to describe their life, their relationship with God. And there's nothing new under the sun. Uh, to be sure, it's different manifestations of faith. It's certainly a different duration of life, different situations. Each one of us have different scenarios, different trials, different temptations, different blessings. But we all, by God's grace and mercy in Christ, walk with Christ, may walk with Christ. That's why, for example, the Apostle Paul told the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we walk by faith and not by sight. That's the exact same dynamic that the author of Hebrews uses when he exposits the life of Enoch. Or Colossians 2, 6, Paul there states it as a command. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. This walk of faith. Beloved, this walk of faith that you and I are charged towards is the whole life that we live. It's in response to the God we have and the promises that he makes. This walk of faith, we could put it this way, is the God-given ability to understand to receive to believe and to obey his truth to accept God's truth that's the same promise for example that Jesus gave in John 18 in our Thursday morning men's Bible study which I again uh, commend to you men we were going through chapter 18 this last Thursday and when Jesus was before Pilate in the kangaroo trial John 18 37 Pilate therefore said to him so you're a king Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, God's sovereignty, to bear witness to the truth. And then watch this. Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Beloved, that is a dimension of the walk of faith. One who has the God-given ability to accept the truth of God. To accept God's truth and to live by it. And this kind of faith, it is the same root as believe, but it is, or I should say, and it is a decisive act. We can't, you can't simply drift into it. It is a matter of the heart. It is not a matter of work and effort, but it is a decisive act. And Beloved, understand this. We, even as we're going through these heroes, these great heroes and soon-to-be heroines of the faith, understand this. You don't need to go to seminary to walk with God. You don't need to understand and read Hebrew and Greek to walk with God. You don't even have to have been a Christian, a believer for 10, 20 years to walk with God. By God's grace and mercy, you may walk with God. I was so blessed by the men's uh, breakfast yesterday and the testimony from our brother Harley and the great message from David. What a joy it was. Well, beloved, in Genesis 5, in the middle of this death march, in this, in the middle of this tour through a cemetery, God overrules death on the part 
of Enoch. And he died, and he died, and he died, but not Enoch. He was not, for God took him. Enoch, watch this, Enoch changed his place, but he did not change his company. As he walked with God on earth, Enoch is walking with God now in heaven. And the application, beloved, the application, friend, is understand this, dear friend, you can't live with God in heaven if you don't walk with God on earth. And again, we say it again, I'll say it again, we are saved by faith alone apart from works of law, by faith alone in Christ alone, but the true kind of faith that truly saves, that makes a man or a woman born again, where God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh, and we have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, that is what causes us, blessedly so, to walk with God. And so Enoch's companion during his life is the companion at the end of his life and his eternal companion even today. In the same way for us, John 5, 24, Jesus again said, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Enoch did that before he physically died. Spiritually speaking, anyone, any man or woman, young or old, who would turn to Christ and ask for forgiveness and trust in him alone, by faith alone, has passed out of, will pass out of spiritual death into eternal spiritual life, eternal Sabbath rest. So that is the illustration But now the author, as we continue on the rest of verse 5 and into the beginning of verse 6, he comes to the proposition, and namely that Enoch was pleasing to God. His fellowship with God was pleasing. It's a pleasing to God faith. At the end of verse 5, he says, for, so this is the reason why. So God gives us, through the author of Hebrews, a reason why God took Enoch. Before he died for, he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Uh, this continues this theme of God testifying in the lives of these ancient men and women. We saw it back in verse 2. For by it, by faith, men of old gained approval. Same word as obtain the witness here. Verse 4, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying, same word. And at the very end of Hebrews 11, verse 39, all these, after this litany of great illustrations in 11, all these having gained approval through their faith. The witness, the testimony. And then finally, verse 1 of chapter 12. Since we have so great a cloud of witnesses. So Enoch obtained the witness. God's witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. And beloved, what better words could be said about any man or any woman than he was or she was pleasing to God? There are no better words that could be said. Think of God's announcement out of heaven at the baptism of Jesus by John the baptizer, John the forerunner. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or 
Gabriel's birth announcement to the shepherds in Luke chapter 2. On earth, peace among men with whom he is well pleased. Beloved, there is no greater goal, no greater joy than to be pleasing, to be thought of as pleasing to God. And it's interesting, this uh, root word, please, which is the same root word as the passages I just referenced from Jesus' baptism and the birth announcement. In verb form, this Greek word only appears three times in the New Testament. Here in Hebrews 11, verses 5 and 6, and then later in verse, uh, chapter, excuse me, chapter 13. Um, what's also interesting is the same word, the same verb form of this pleasing is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament specifically to talk in some places about, about people that walked with God. In fact, when we read earlier in Genesis chapter 5 and then even in Genesis chapter 6 of Enoch and Noah walked with God, the Greek translation used this word to please in their translation of that. That's why the author of Hebrews, who quotes from Hebrews, that's why he says he was pleasing to God. God is sovereign over the writing of Scripture. God is sovereign even over the translation of Scripture as well. That is what is at work here. But then in verse 6, look at the beginning. This continues the proposition, this time stated in a double negative. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. It is powerless. You have, no one has any power to please God, ultimately, in any way, shape, or form, without faith, is what he says here. We could state it in the positive as well. Therefore, with faith, it is possible to please him. And this could give us even one more nuanced definition of the kind of faith that saves that we encounter all the way back in Genesis 15, 6 with Abram and Habakkuk 2, 4 and through the rest of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Faith is, in one sense, the power to please God. That is the proposition the author is giving to us here. Or, as David mentioned in his excellent message yesterday out of 1 Corinthians 2, verses 4 and 5, there Paul says, "...my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom." but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith should not rest on the wisdom from men, but on the power of God. It's all tied into the Word of God, the revealed will of God, of accepting that, believing that there is power. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So, <clears throat> beloved, this faith power comes from the Word of God. And what else can we say about Enoch? Enoch was, we know from Jude, the other New Testament reference where there's a couple verses about him. He was a fearless preacher and he was a prophet of God. In Jude verses 14 and 15, we see that besides being a beacon of hope that gives hope in his escape from death, he was also a beacon of hope who pierced the darkness of a dark, deadly time. Even as we would go through Genesis 5 and we see the family tree from Adam to Noah. And we know, of course, by the time of Noah that the world was just saturated with total and utter evil. That's why God destroyed the world with the flood. But even at the time of Enoch, it was a dark and deadly time. And Enoch was an ancient man with an ancient message. 
He was a timeless man with a timeless message. He was a deathless man with a deathless message. And I actually could have used the present tense. He is a timeless man, etc., etc. Jude 14, verse 14, Jude writes, Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied. This is the first human prophecy recorded in Scripture. Uh, This is taken from an apocryphal book. It was taken from a book that was not in its whole inspired by God, not superintended by the Holy Spirit, but by virtue of the of Jude quoting from this book of Enoch, which, by the way, there, while there's a paucity of references of Enoch, in other words, a small amount of references of Enoch in the Bible, in the Jewish literature and the rabbinical literature at the time, there was a huge, there was a huge fascination. So there are all kinds of writings, and this is a case where, in one of those apocryphal, non-scriptural writings, there was a quote there that was an accurate quote of what Enoch actually said. So all that to say. Jude quotes some 3,500 years prior to the writing of Jude, some, which is 5,500 years from now, that even before the flood, Enoch gave this prophecy, saying, continuing verse 14, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones. And what Enoch is doing there, he's prophesying the coming of the Lord. He uses past tense because it's so absolutely certain that it will happen. And then he gives the reason why. Enoch gives the reason why the Lord is coming to execute judgment upon all. There's no escape, no exception, no defense, no advocate. There's no retrial. There's no appeal. None will be overlooked. None will escape. And then he continues, Jude, at the end of verse 15, and watch a word that he repeats four times. To, he's coming, the Lord's coming, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Four times in the hard preaching of Enoch, he repeats the word ungodly. I mean, imagine we read earlier in Genesis 5 that Enoch walked with God for 300 years. Can you imagine 300 years of sanctification? I mean, what what that would look like in, in a man or in a woman. But also now imagine 900 years, you know, the age that people lived prior to the flood. Imagine 900 years of hardening, of hardening and sin, of giving in to temptation. It helps us understand why the world was so wretched and wicked that God destroyed it with the flood. And Enoch captures this with the word ungodly. He walked, Enoch, beloved, walked with God in an age when practically no one else did. He is an example of faith that stands alone. He had bold courage without compromise. That's why Whitfield said he described Enoch as, quote, a flaming preacher. Enoch, you see, didn't plead. And by the way, by Enoch's generation, there were several million, perhaps tens of millions of human beings alive at that time. Most of them, all of them would have been brothers, sisters, nieces, nephews, aunts, uncles, and different generations at the time. And that is the audience to whom he is preaching. And we can be sure that he wasn't very popular with them. So he didn't please the majority of his relatives. But what God tells us through the author of Hebrews is he pleased God. 
he pleased God. Beloved, God is always far more interested in a holy minority than some imaginary moral majority. And we can even think of the fall in Genesis 3. It was a failure of faith. The failure of faith on the part of Eve and Adam, on the part of Adam and Eve, was rebellion against God's authority. It was questioning God's goodness, and it was a denial of God's word. That's the exact opposite of the pattern of belief and trust and obedience and inheritance and hope that we see in Hebrews chapter 11. Dear friend, the lack of faith severs the lifeline which links, which tethers the creature to his or her creator. Bottom line, as I stated before in a different way, if you don't walk with God on earth, you will not live with God in heaven. I like what James Montgomery Boyce said in the context of minority and majority. The late Dr. Boyce said this, do you find yourself to be a minority in your family, your neighborhood, your business, even your church, perhaps? Not this church. Don't be discouraged. It's always been this way. Apparently, God doesn't deal so much in quantity as in quality. Moreover, although the faithful are often few, parenthetically praise God, there are also many times, they are nevertheless always those few. And, Dr. Boyce now gets to an application, we are meant to encourage one another. And how wonderfully does that flow from what the author of Hebrews said, by way of reminder, just 10 or 14 verses earlier, Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. So, beloved, that is the illustration, that is the proposition. Finally, at the end of verse 6 in Hebrews 11, the author, Pastor Preacher, comes to the application. And in the middle, he gives another purpose statement. He says, for, middle of Hebrews eleven six for, he who comes to God, he or she who would draw near to God, must believe, must believe. Again, the same root word for faith is the root word for believe. And actually, it's at the beginning of the clause in the original Greek for emphasis. Believe, he who comes to God, must have. And we can ask the question, what exactly, what precisely did Enoch believe in some 5,500 years ago? What is the timeless message of this timeless man? And what we see at the end of verse 6, there are two beliefs. Enoch believed in God's being and God's bounty. He believed in God's reality and God's reward. He believed in God's existence and God's excellence. First belief, Enoch, beloved, and this is simple, this is fundamental, this is foundational. Enoch believed in God's being. God is the supreme and eternal object of all true faith. He must believe, the one who would come to God must believe that he is. 
Now, we'll pause here for a second. There's a nuance here because we know, according to 1 Corinthians 1, that all men, a man or a woman may profess to be agnostic, they may profess to be an atheist, but they know that God exists by virtue of creation and by virtue of conscience. But what the author of Hebrews is doing here is he's taking it to the next level. You must go beyond the mere innate understanding where God has set eternity in the heart of every man and woman who are born in the image of God, made, I should say made in the image of God. We must go, go beyond that and have the kind of biblical belief, the kind of biblical faith where we understand it, we've been, as we've been notified of it, and we agree with it. But it's beyond that. We must trust in the very essence of God and his eternal being. And by the way, verses 1 and 6 here in Hebrews 11, it's kind of like a sandwich, kind of like a bracket. Both verse 1 has two components of faith. It's the assuring substance. Faith is the assuring substance of things not seen and the convincing evidence. We see that in verse 1. And then here in verse 6, faith is the belief in God's being and in his bounty. And as he's saying he must believe that he is, notice the author of Hebrews joins all the rest of the authors of Scripture. He doesn't offer proofs of God's existence. The Bible begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are classical arguments for the existence of God, the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, the moral argument. There's some value in those, but as David even said yesterday, not, not about that per se, but same dynamic, that is for our assurance. That's for the blessing. That's not primarily to try to lead or woo an unsafe person by convincing them of something that they already know that God exists. Beloved, God is the supreme reality and the first cause and the foundation and source of all created beings. We know this, all of us, from creation and conscience, and we know it in perfect, sufficient detail from the pages of Scripture. And, beloved, because God is, he can be there for you. He is full and overflowing. And belief in God carries, necessarily, belief in the word of God. This is not, even as I've mentioned before, regarding the kind of true faith, the saving faith, which is logical, rational, and reasonable, not like, for example, evolutionary faith, which is irrational, illogical, and unreasonable, and absolutely unscientific. That's a side topic. You can pick that up later. Beloved, this is not an invitation to take a step in the dark. It's an invitation to turn to the light and to believe that he keeps his promises. Which takes us to the second belief that Enoch had. He believed in God's being, and he believed in God's bounty. God is the supreme, eternal object of all true faith. And as we finish out verse 6, he is also personal. He blesses. And this is where Enoch brings out <clears throat> this recurring dynamic through all these examples, namely that biblical saving faith is a forward-looking gaze. Look at the end of verse 6. You must believe and that he, God, is a rewarder of those who seek him. Uh, another intensified verb in the original, in original language, someone, the one who seeks diligently him. And we can ask the question, who are those who seek God? For example, again, if we are a student of Scripture, this is a similar kind of 
paradoxical at human face value of another dynamic. We know the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 3, there is none who seek for God. There's none righteous. No, not one. There's none who understands. Romans 3.11, there's none who seeks for God. No unsaved man or woman seeks God. So what we understand is when he is, the author of Hebrews is talking about, we must believe that God is the rewarder of those who seek him. Those who seek him aren't unbelievers seeking God. These are, this is describing believers who seek God on a daily basis. We could put it this way. We seek him because he first sought us. In the same way as we love him because he first loved us. And what was Enoch's reward? Again, Enoch escaped death. He lived in obedience and fellowship as he walked with God and with one another, whoever the one another were for him. He lived in obedience and fellowship with God, and so God overruled death for him. Beloved, dear friend, the message of Scripture from Genesis 3, even when God was pouring out his judgment, eventually on Adam and Eve, but even prior to that, when he was pouring out his judgment on serpent and the, sap- and <laughs> the serpent and Satan, there's always a word of hope. There is a way of escape. That de- there's a message that death is not the end for those who belong to God, for those who trust God, for those who have faith. By faith, you, dear friend, may escape death if you put your faith in Christ. Life, a long life on this side of the grave is not the greatest blessing that can come from God. To be taken into the presence of God in Christ, even prematurely. And all of us can probably think of examples, and most of you will know the immediate example that comes to my mind. That is a greater reward. Philippians 1, 21. To live is Christ and to die is gain. Death is not the extinguishing the light of the Christian. It's putting away the lamp because the dawn, the eternal dawn has come. So beloved, on our steady climb to glory, we always need spiritual leaders in front of us, and we should always have disciples behind us. Enoch shines like a jewel. He commands our attention, and he calls for invitation. He reminds us that faith honors God, and so as faith honors God, so God honors faith. Faith unites us to the blessings of God. Faith trusts the promises of God. Come to him now afresh anew with the empty hands of faith. That's the message of all of scripture. That's certainly the message of the illustration, proposition, and application of the life of this amazing figure Enoch. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you for the power of your word, Lord. Thank you that it penetrates to the innermost part of our being, that it shines light on our thinking, on our behavior, on our imagination, on our desires, on our passions, on our stewardship, on all aspects of our life. And we praise you and thank you for your grace and for your mercy. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sinless, perfect life of obedience, for your voluntary death 
at the cross and your victorious triumph over the grave, over death, over sin, over disease, over Satan when you rose from the grave. It is for your glory and for your honor, Lord, that we pray that we sing. Amen.